0: Our gospel reading immediately following is taken from Luke's gospel. So if you turn back uh, to Luke chapter 19 Luke chapter 19, we're going to read verses 28 to 44 and I'll have you stand today as we read the gospel account. <clears throat> Luke 19:28 to 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, whereon entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks in the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that might make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'm going to invite Tim Cook to come forward tim is going to bring us the word of god today
1: rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud o daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a coal colt the foal of a donkey This prophecy from Zechariah 9 was written over 500 years before the birth of Christ, and today we are looking at its fulfillment. This afternoon we will be joining the Israelites, setting foot in the streets of Jerusalem, and we can imagine the scene around us. There's quite a stir in the city. We look down and we see palm branches on the road, people taking off their cloaks, creating a red carpet of sorts. We listen and hear loud voices Excitement, laughter, shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We look up, and amidst the chaos we can barely make it out. A man sitting on a donkey, surrounded by crowds, riding into Jerusalem, weeping. This is one of few events recorded in all four Gospels, and today on Palm Sunday, we'll be looking at this triumphal entry of Jesus. Um, this, specifically this afternoon, we'll be examining three truths about the kingdom of heaven. Let's begin in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you with the Israelites today for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We thank you for the privilege of gathering before your word. We pray to you today, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Again, today we'll be looking at three truths about the kingdom of heaven. Truth number one, Jesus is the king. And we seek Jesus' kingship uh, in the early part of this narrative in several ways. Firstly, we see Jesus' sovereignty. Throughout scripture, we see God's acts of sovereignty, his perfect control over all events and circumstances. Time and again, we see Isaac being born at his parents' old age. We see Joseph being promoted from prison to second in command in Egypt. We see manna coming down from heaven to feed the people of Israel. These are grand, spectacular events. And we see these throughout Jesus' ministry, the calming of the storm, the feeding of the thousands, the skies becoming dark at the crucifixion. And in a less dramatic but equally important way, we see it here as well. Jesus tells them the location of the donkey. Jesus predicts what its owners will say. Jesus knows that they will respond to the Lord's need and let them take it. Jesus exercises his sovereignty. Secondly, Jesus commands obedience. And putting myself in this story, if I were one of Jesus' disciples, I would probably be a little bit suspicious of this situation. What do we say again when they accuse us of stealing the donkey? Tell them it's for the Lord. You know, to be perfectly honest, if someone came up to me and and said that they were going to steal my bike or my car because the Lord told them to, I would probably respond with, did God really say? But there is no contradiction here. For all we know, Jesus may have returned the donkey afterwards. We don't really know. But either way, if the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he also owns that donkey. In response to Jesus, though, we see from the disciples total obedience. No questions, no doubts, no hesitations. And we see the same from the owners of the donkey. C.H. Spurgeon says this, our king's warrant runs anywhere. And even when his personal presence is not consciously realized, his royal and divine word still rules the minds and hearts of of men. Jesus commands obedience. Thirdly, Jesus receives worship from his subjects. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When we hear these words, we see a parallel to the fields of Bethlehem, of shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. Luke 2.13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And just as the wise men worshipped the baby Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, so Jesus' followers worship him as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they recognize his kingship. At least most of them do. As usual, there are some, the Pharisees, who object to this worship of Christ Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees know that Jesus' followers believe that he is the Messiah, and they are surprised that Jesus doesn't tell them to be quiet. Jesus, who has rebuked his disciples many times for their words, will not prevent them from giving to God the worship that is due his name. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out, John Calvin says, God will sooner give mouths and tongues to stones than allow the kingdom of his son to be without witnesses. Jesus is our king and we are members of his kingdom. As Christians, we live under his reign, his laws, and his authority. What kind of king is Jesus like? Jesus is a good king. He knows exactly what is going on in his kingdom. He's not deaf to the cries of his people. He will never be corrupted by power, and he will never abuse or exploit his people. Jesus is a just king. He will always punish evil accordingly. He hates injustice and never lets the innocent be condemned or the guilty go unpunished. Jesus is a loving king. He knows his subjects more intimately than they know themselves. He cares about each one, enough to go to the cross on our behalf. He's aware of our deepest, most personal needs, and guarantees that when we follow him, he will look after us, that in all things he works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Truth number one, Jesus is the king. Truth number two, Jesus' kingdom does not come in power, but weakness. And we see this from day one of Jesus' life, born not in a palace, but in a manger. Grew up in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Surrounded by uneducated fishermen with no place to lay his head. And here we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, not on a horse, but on a donkey. One commentator says this, This entry into Jerusalem fulfills prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, which we read earlier, and is a public claim to messiahship, but of a distinctive kind. The donkey is the animal of a man of peace and is associated with humility in Zechariah's prophecy. A conquering king would ride a horse. Spurgeon says, here we see Christ's true royalty again, flashing out from beneath the humiliation of his humanity. He lets us know that Although he is going up to Jerusalem to die, it is not because he is not Lord of all, but that being Lord of all, he makes himself of no reputation, takes upon himself the form of a servant, is made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself and becomes obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. On the cross, Jesus, King of the Jews, will not wear a crown of jewels but a crown of thorns. Truth number two Jesus kingdom comes in weakness, not power. Finally truth number three Jesus kingdom gives not earthly but heavenly peace this is a, this is a theme running throughout Jesus ministry His purposes are constantly misunderstood by those around him and these disciples That are following jesus they know the prophecies they recognize the signs yes they yet they miss the point to be fair these disciples do rightly perceive jesus to be the messiah but they are confused about his purpose they believe that the messiah's primary role is to free them from roman oppression however jesus has already stated earlier on in his ministry that earthly peace is not his purpose, at least not in this first coming to earth. Matthew 10 says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is Jesus' true purpose on this earth? Luke 19, verse 10, only verses prior to this text For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Matthew 1, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, not from the Romans, from their sins. Sin, this is the problem, that we hate God, that we are his enemies, that we have rejected his kingly authority in our lives, that we despise his laws, And disobey his commands, that we fail to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the peace that we need, peace with God, not liberation from our earthly enemies. Jesus says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Israel is blind to the things that make for peace with God blinded by their political aspirations, their religious legalism, and their moral hypocrisy. And very soon, in less than a week, these very people will cry out again, with the same enthusiasm, a very different message, crucify him. What an image this is, the crowds rejoicing, praising God, heralding Christ as their savior, while Jesus weeps, Spurgeon says this, What a contrast, the king's courtiers shouting for joy and the king himself weeping over the guilty city where the greatest tragedy in the history of the whole universe was about to take place. The king saw in the near and more remote future what no one else could see, so when he was come near and beheld the city, he wept over it. Another commentator says this, Only Luke records Jesus' lament as he draws near the city. Jesus knows that the excitement of the crowds does not correspond to genuine spiritual perception of his messianic mission. Although the crowds speak of peace, they fail to grasp the reconciliation with God that was their deepest need and Jesus' central task. In a few days, the crowd will repudiate him, and the ultimate result will be war, not peace, as God will use the Romans in AD 70 to judge the city that defied his son. Finally, Matthew Henry, what a tender spirit Christ was of. We never read that he laughed, but we often find him in tears. The sin and folly of those that persist in a contempt of gospel grace are a great grief to the Lord Jesus, and should be so to us. He looks with weeping eyes upon lost souls that continue impenitent and run headlong upon their own ruin. He had rather that they would turn and live than go on and die, for he is not willing that any should perish. This is the gospel, that Jesus came as a man and died on a Roman cross, that we should have peace with God forgiveness, reconciliation, peace. Truth number three, Jesus' kingdom gives not earthly, but heavenly peace. These three truths about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the king. Jesus' kingdom does not come in power, but weakness. Jesus' kingdom gives not earthly, but heavenly peace. I now want to briefly consider how we can apply these three truths to our lives. One, we must recognize Christ's as our King, Jesus is our ultimate authority. He exercises sovereignty, demands obedience, and receives worship from his subjects. Let us ask ourselves do we trust Christ's sovereignty? Do we believe that he is in control of all our circumstances, that he does not forget his people but works out all things for our good? Or do we question his power, his love? His promise that he will be with us always to the end of the age. Do we honor Christ's authority? Do we obey our king as law abiding citizens in his kingdom? Or do we harbor mutiny and rebellion? Do we submit to his word and his laws even when it is difficult and countercultural and costly? Or do we think that we could run the kingdom better and put our own interpretations and thoughts and ideas above God's? Do we worship Christ as he deserves? Do we give him the first fruits of our time, our money, our attention, our devotion? Or is Jesus just one of many components of our lives, a half-hearted commitment, an afterthought? We must recognize Christ as our King Secondly, we must embrace weakness. Weakness, pain, discouragement, trial, tribulation. Throughout scripture, it is taught that these are part of what it means to be a Christian. Second Corinthians 12, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This should be an encouragement to us here at Christchurch. We are small in number. We are young in age. We do not have our own building or a large bank account. But let us remember Christ, our King who rode on a donkey, whose power is made perfect in weakness. Lastly, we must cling to Jesus, the only source of true peace. We live restless lives, lives of conflict, lives of struggle. And there are many ways that we try to find peace or think we can find peace, a better job, a relationship or a better one, a better church, more money, buying a house, having a family, retirement. Our world gives us solutions as well, political and economic reform, an improved education system, social justice, medical breakthroughs, technological advancement. Like Israel hoping for freedom from Roman oppression, it's easy to put our faith in these things to save us. But we must always remember that the thing we need saving from the most is not without, but within. It's ourselves, our own sin. And the only one who can bring ultimate, lasting, heavenly, eternal peace is Jesus Christ. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, in knowing Christ, being found in Christ, being citizens of his eternal kingdom, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses daily, and following him. God, give us grace today to submit to Christ's kingship, to embrace weakness, and to claim to Jesus, our only source of true peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.